Happy uh, September. Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis 33. Which means we're not in chapter 32 anymore. So we're moving. Taking a look, maybe verses 1 through 11 today, maybe not, but the title of our message this morning is The Power of Forgiveness. The Power of Forgiveness. We enter this chapter in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis where God is raising up a nation. Here, dealing specifically not so much with Abraham and Isaac, but now in these chapters, he's dealing with the character Jacob. Jacob had somebody that was mad at him, his brother Esau. In fact, his brother was so mad at him that he wanted to kill him. And this forced Jacob to flee from Canaan there in the west up north to a place called Haran. Um, The more specific area within Haran is a place called Padan Aram. And it's there Jacob has... uh, 20 years experience of being mistreated by Laban, but God has been faithful that whole 20 year period as Jacob now has a giant family, as now Jacob has massive wealth, and he is told by God to leave Haran and return to the land of his birth, the land of Canaan. So, The problem, though, is as he's leaving Haran, returning to Canaan, he's got to deal with this 20-year-old grudge that his brother Esau has towards him because he did cheat his brother back in chapter 28, etc. So how is this issue going to get resolved? Um, That's really the big issue in chapters 32 and 33, there's the angelic manifestation at Maha Naim, chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. There's Jacob sending a message to Esau, chapter 32, verses 3 through 21, and that leads to a wrestling match one night between God and Jacob at a place called Peniel where Jacob sees the face of God. And with all of that behind him, now we have the actual meeting between Jacob and Esau, chapter 33, verses 1 through 17. Here's an outline that we're going to try to follow as we try to navigate our way this morning through these verses. You'll notice, first of all, Esau's approach. Chapter 33, verse 1, it says, Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. 
This is not the first time we've learned about this 400 men coming from Esau. Uh, you saw it back in chapter 32, verse 6. It says, Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Now, what would you think if <laughs> you cheated someone and they have a murderous grudge towards you? And then you're told, um, oh, by the way, they're coming to meet you with 400 people. Um, that's a, quite a company. I mean, you could think any number of things. If you think the worst, you could think this could be a war. This could be my end. And so Jacob really had nothing to rely upon from his natural senses other than God's faithfulness. And I believe in my heart of hearts that that is God's design for so many of us. He intentionally puts us in these situations where you really don't know how to interpret it, good or bad. The only thing you really have to rely upon at the end of the day is the character of God. And that's not necessarily a bad place to be because when God puts you in that position, he's going to teach you something about the depth of God, the character of God, the faithfulness of God. So if you find yourself today in that kind of situation, um, as the book of James says, count yourself wealthy because you're in that great position of learning where God wants to teach us something. Don't, don't get angry at God because you're there. Be open to God because you're there because these are the great teaching devices that the Lord uses. And so here comes Esau with 400 people. You see Jacob's response, second part of verse 1 into verse 2, where he divides his family physically. You see the division, second part of verse 1, and then you see the order, verse 2. It says, so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. So 12 total divided amongst two maids and two wives. And the order is given in verse 2. He put the maids and their children in front. The maids are probably saying thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph last. So maids and their children first, Leah and her children second, Rachel and her child, in this case it's Joseph third. Why did Jacob organize things that way? I mean, we're really not told. Maybe it's um, a chapter 32, verse 8 kind of thing, where he divided his company. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. A lot of commentators go that direction. Another possible explanation is he divided them up according to the importance to him personally. Um, the maids were really not his wives. Leah, who's, what is it, third in this arrangement, um, she 
was someone Jacob married, but that was not his preferred wife. His his preferred wife was was uh, Rachel. Um, why did he divide it up this way? I, I guess I, don't, I really don't know. But the text says he did it and doesn't really give much of a, an explanation. And then you see Jacob approaching now Esau. But he, that's Jacob, passed on ahead of them, bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. You'll notice that Jacob puts himself out first in front of everybody in case this is an attack. And that is pretty good leadership when you think about it. I mean, the leader shouldn't hide behind his entourage if something negative is going to happen. It's sort of like the captain, you know, always goes down with the ship. So that's really good leadership. It's self-sacrificing leadership. And then it says he bowed down to the ground seven times. Now that was actually a common practice in the ancient Near East when this was written. Charles Ryrie of this verse says, bowed down seven times a widely attested sign of homage fit for a king. Jacob apparently was taking no chances And what's the result of the whole thing? Until he, that's Jacob, came near to his brother Esau, who 20 years earlier had this murderous grudge against him. And then Esau does something. Probably relieved Jacob when this happened. But it's there in verse 4. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Look at the action verbs here. Ran, met, embraced, fell on his neck, kissed him. Uh, They wept together. You notice that Esau here doesn't follow the exact same protocol that Jacob followed in the prior verse. And why is that? Because I believe that Esau, it was in his heart of hearts to forgive Jacob, forgave him. And that's why I've entitled this message, The the Power of Forgiveness. One of the most powerful things a human being can do is to forgive somebody else when somebody else has inflicted a wrong against us as Jacob had inflicted upon Esau. I think that forgiveness is one of the most misunderstood ideas. It's not the idea that you pretend that what happened to you by way of an injustice really didn't happen. A lot of people move into this sort of minimizing of things. Oh, you know, you're just overreacting. Oh, you know, maybe it's not as bad as you think it is. Oh, maybe maybe your memory is faulty. That's not what forgiveness is. It's not minimizing the situation. It's not, you know, pretending like an injustice never transpired. Rather, forgiveness is the idea that, yeah, a wrong has been inflicted against me, but I am making a decision not to hold the perpetrator 
to a standard of justice. I'm letting them off with the justice that they deserve. That's what forgiveness is. The Bible says that as Christians, we should be characterized by this. Why is that? Because we are people that have been forgiven. The book of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 is describing the rationale or the logic of forgiving somebody. Paul the apostle in Ephesians 4 verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Yeah, but Paul, you don't realize what they did to me. Paul says, yeah, I realize it. That's why the verse doesn't end there. Right in the middle of verse 32, he says, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You see, (laughs) when we understand that we have been unconditionally forgiven by God, by grace, and that's who we are as Christians, it becomes somewhat of an inconsistency to turn around and hold someone else to a standard of justice when God has decided not to treat me with justice. He's decided to treat me with grace. And because God has not decided to treat me with justice, forgiveness is the ability to say, you know what, so-and-so that did this to me or did that to me, I'm not ignoring it, I'm not saying it didn't happen, I'm not marginalizing it, I'm not minimizing it. What I'm doing is I'm making a decision to not hold the perpetrator to a standard of justice because God has decided not to hold me to a standard of justice. The power of forgiveness. The unsaved world knows nothing of this because they don't understand the forgiveness available to the Christian through the person of Jesus Christ. The the world says, you know, don't get mad, get even. Basketball world, you throw an elbow against me, I'm going to throw one back. Uh, and, And that's how the world operates. But a Christian obviously thinks very differently because a Christian understands through the doctrine of grace, unmerited favor, that they have been unconditionally forgiven by God. God has not decided to treat me with justice. And so when I'm wronged, I'm not pretending that I wasn't wronged, but I'm making that decision to let that person off the hook, off the justice hook. The reason I call it the power of forgiveness is there is no more liberating thing that can happen in a person's life than the capacity to do this. What if I don't do it as a Christian? Does that mean I'm not saved? I'm not going to say that. What I'm saying is you immediately put yourself in a position of bondage. Because the prior verses, right before Ephesians 4.32, Ephesians 4.26 and 27, it says, Be angry, yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. First time I read that, I thought, I want to move to Alaska. 
<laughs> I could be angry all the time, right? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then look at this next verse. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Some of the translations say, do not give the devil a foothold. You become, as a Christian, a person of unforgiveness, meaning they mistreated me, I want justice, and I'm holding on to that. Which I guess, in a certain sense, from the human perspective, that's your right. You can hold on to that if you want. God hasn't treated you that way, but you can go ahead and hold on to that. Well, you just gave Satan an ability to come into your life and have influence over it. Not not possession. A Christian cannot be demon-possessed, but a Christian can surely be influenced by Satan. Meaning... You now are the type of person that Satan can use to disrupt family life, life in the church, because you've bottled up all this anger. And the interesting thing about anger is it's got to come out some way or the other. It's got to spill out. And nine times out of ten, it spills out on people that never did anything wrong to you to begin with. It spills out on your spouse. It spills out on your Children, our grandchildren, it spills out on people in the life of the church. And it's because because I made a decision not to forgive, I gave Satan a foothold. I'm still going to heaven. I'm still a blood-bought Christian. But now Satan says I can use that person to cause mayhem in the family, in the church, in one's health. Etc., etc. It is very instructive that Jesus in Matthew 18, and I wish we had time to look at the whole parable, but he talked about this at the very end of Matthew chapter 18. He talked, he talked about a man who had been forgiven much financially. Let's say that man had been forgiven a million dollars debt. And he went and grabbed a guy that owed him a paltry sum, let's just say a a few hundred dollars. And he demanded, which was his right, he demanded that every penny be paid. He demanded that that second man be thrown into debtor's prison. In other words, he treated that other man in a different way than the ultimate forgiver treated him. And you get to the end of that parable and you say, boy, that is just ridiculous to act that way. I mean, why why would somebody that's been forgiven millions of dollars turn around to someone else and demand every penny be paid? I mean, why don't you be a little bit more gracious? Why don't you be a little bit more forgiving? But that parable is there to show us how ridiculous we look as Christians when we have this justice mindset where we don't let people off the hook justice-wise when God himself has chosen not to treat us the way we treat other people. It's kind of interesting how God treats us one way and we treat other people in a completely different way. How do we look in the eyes of God when we do that? We look we look foolish. We look dumb. We look stupid. 
In fact, Jesus taught a whole parable about this. And there's a part of that parable that's always stuck out to me. It's in Matthew 18, verse 34. It says, And his Lord, that's the ultimate forgiver, moved with anger, handed him, that's the unforgiving man, over to, and it's a really fascinating choice of words here, it says over to the torturers. Torturers. What an interesting way of describing this. Until he, that's man number one, should repay all that he owed. We put ourselves into a position of emotional and spiritual and psychological and physical torture when we are unforgiving. I mean, it it wreaks havoc in your relationships. It wreaks havoc in our life of the church. It wreaks havoc in our physical bodies. And it's almost like I've heard this example used Unforgiveness is like taking poison and swallowing it, thinking that you're going to hurt somebody else in the process. When in reality, the person that hurt you is not affected one way or the other, whether you forgive or or don't forgive. The only person we've really damaged, you know, is ourselves. We've hurt ourselves. And God has so much more for us. What did Jesus say? Whom, whom the Son has set free will be free indeed. How do you how do you stay free in Christ when we're perpetually holding grudges against other people? It's not a denial that something bad has happened. As I said before, it's not marginalizing. It's it's not minimalizing. You're just saying I'm going to let so and so off the hook. And you know that you're making progress in that area because when you make a decision, and it is, it requires volition. It requires, first of all, good theology. The doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of grace. But you're, as you, as you make a decision, you're basically liberating yourself. And you know that you're moving in that direction when you have, when you stop thinking about it all the time. You know, there are some people when you talk to them and they're, they're mad about this and they're mad about that. And that's normal. That's the world we live in. Everybody gets hurt by somebody. You know, you listen to them talk. This person did this. This person did that to me. And they can describe it in such vivid detail that they, they give you the impression that it happened like last week or something. And, and, and you start to go further in the conversation and they're talking about things that happened 30, 40 years ago. And I'm thinking to myself, you're, you're carrying this around when you don't have to. So when you release someone, um, the, the torturing stops. You're, you're liberating yourself. You're no longer drinking poison thinking it's going to hurt another person. Now, I've been exposed to a doctrine, and I want to confront it because I don't think it's right, but many, many people told me when I was coming of age as a Christian is, well, you don't really have to forgive 
until the perpetrator asks for forgiveness. And they grab some verses really out of context to try to make that right. And I don't think, look, if you're waiting for so-and-so to come up and apologize, you might be waiting a long time. I mean, that, that makes your freedom contingent on, on their reaction. They, they might, they might not even know that what they, what they did to you. Or you might confront them and they won't listen. So, so your freedom is not contingent upon their reaction. Your freedom is contingent on your own decision to treat someone else the way the Lord has treated you. And this idea that, well, they gotta come and ask for forgiveness before I forgive them. I'm sorry, but in my Bible it still says, as Jesus was dying on the cross, forgive them, Father, they what? They know not what they do. That's not Jesus saying, well, you better apologize to me before I forgive you. He just says, forgive them, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. And and all the freedom in walking in that, you know, we talk about the mental disciplines, how liberating it is to release someone from a standard of justice that you have a right to impose, by the way. Because you were legitimately injured. And you just do it because, well, the Lord forgave me a bigger debt. So I think I'll let so-and-so off the hook. Yeah, but pastor, you don't, you don't know what they did to me. Well, I probably don't. But I do know what he did for you. Didn't we just celebrate it this morning? The Lord's table? And it's a power that is unleashed in your life that will do more for you than any other single person on planet Earth. I don't think an unsaved, non-Christian person can think this way. But a person with right theology, a right doctrine of Christ, a right understanding of the grace of God, uh, charis in Greek, grace, unmerited favor, that's a person that can walk in this because they, they get it. I have to ask ourselves, like I have to ask myself sometimes, do we, do I, do we really understand grace? Do we get it? Because we throw the word around a lot, but do we understand its meaning? And you know that you understand what it actually means when you start to walk in it. And you start to treat people uh, with the standard that the Lord has treated you with. And I'm also of the persuasion that that doesn't mean you immediately go back and put yourself in harm's way. How does the saying go? Fool me once. Shame on me. Is it Shame on you. There we go. Fool me twice. Shame on me. I don't think you have to intentionally put yourself back into harm's way just because you've forgiven somebody. I mean, if a dog has a propensity to bite, you might stay away from that particular dog. So there's this idea that, well, if you forgive someone, you got to intentionally put yourself in harm's way again. I don't think that's what the Bible says. The Bible says walk in common sense. But it's a, it's a mental state, it's an emotional state, where you're just making a decision by way of volition to let so-and-so, who committed a legitimate offense against you, off the hook in the standard of justice that you deserve to be imposed.
The interesting thing about this, I've discovered, is when you let someone else off the hook, the way I'm describing it, now they're on God's hook. And I've discovered that God has a much more creative way of dealing with people (laughs) than I do. But as long as I'm holding on to my own standard of justice, the Lord says, oh, they're not on my hook, they're on your hook. But the moment you make a decision to forgive, now they're on God's hook. Lord, you you deal with them the way you want. I'm not going to insist on justice anymore because you don't treat me that way. And I don't want to treat other people that way. So this is just a powerful thing that's happened here. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and the two of them wept together. You'll you'll also notice something else here. Here's another thing that may be helpful to you. That there's been all this angst, uh, this 400 people coming. I mean, we learned about that in the last chapter. Obviously, Jacob is worried about that. And everything Jacob was worried about didn't happen. That's kind of an interesting thing about worry. I was sitting, um, I remember almost exactly where I was sitting in college. Um, we were looked across from each other at the cafeteria. And one of my very best friends during my college years, he said, you know, most of the things that I'm worried about have never happened in my life and I thought, you know, that is really true. I mean, do a do your own mental checklist. Most of the things that we're so worried about, so concerned about, that we spent so much mental energy on, never even materialized to begin with. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in uh, Matthew 6, verse 26, as he's dealing with the subject of anxiety. He says, which of you by worrying could add one cubit (laughs) to his stature? I mean, all this angst and all of this worry, okay, what has it accomplished at the end of the day? Has it increased your life? If anything, it's probably subtracted from your life because a person given over to uh, incessant worry usually has a lot of health problems down the road because the, the the human body the way God designed it is not designed to sit and focus on anxiety all the time any more than it's designed to hold bitterness God did not design this that way so if I'm a person filled with anger because of an unforgiving spirit and if I'm a person filled with anxiety because I'm really not trusting the Lord and I'm worried about things, most of which will never happen, then which of you by worrying can add a single cubit to his life? In fact, what, what you've done is you've subtracted from your life. You know, the, the longevity that God intended for you has been cut short. So that's why I entitled this, this message the, the power of forgiveness. It's, it's a power for you. It's designed to empower you. The Christian understands it. Non-Christian, they don't understand it at all because they have no Christological, grace-oriented belief system. But you have that. 
And because you have that, that forms the basis by which we interact with other people. As my professor J. Dwight Pentecost used to say, Selah. Consider, consider carefully. Consider carefully what me and my weakness verbally is trying to express to you. Because should these things become solidified in your life, you're going to be a person of liberation. You're going to be a person of freedom. You're going to be a person that is living above and beyond the mundane circumstances of life. You know, the unsaved world, what are they living by? Circumstances. And here's you soaring like an eagle above and beyond life circumstances. Bad things happen to all of us, but here you are above it like an eagle because God has released you. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. So act like it. Act like it in your decisions. Act like it in your emotions. Live like a liberated person. The, the, the bird has been in the cage a long time. If you're a bird in a cage as a Christian, you can, you can stay in the cage if you want. But you're living beneath your circumstances. You're, you're living beneath your privileges. We, we all can get like that. Let the bird out. Let the, as my wife says, we've got two cats at our house. Let them out. Let's not keep them bottled up. They're about, what, one years old. They're just discovering what the outside world is like, which is our back porch. They just think it's the neatest thing to go out there and sniff around at the plants and hear the Sugarland Airport airplanes. That kind of freaks them out a little bit. But it's just a neat thing to take those cats that are bottled up and just let them go. Now, we don't let them run away or anything. My daughter would crucify me if that happened. But but that's what I think about. I think about, you know, so many times as Christians we're living in a bottled up house when God says, get out of the house, get out of the dungeon. I live in a nice house too, but... Get out of there and and let those cats have a little bit of the outside world. So you have Esau's approach, Jacob's response, Jacob's approach, Esau's greeting, and now Esau meets Jacob's family, verses 5 through 7. It starts with a question. I'm in the first part of verse 5. He lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, and said, who are these with you? It's a great question. Uh, who, who are these people? Why, why does he ask that? Because when you go back to chapter 32 and you look at verse 10, Jacob fled into Haran, Padad, Padan, Aram, with nothing but a staff. And when I say staff, I'm not talking about his secretary, his administrative assistant. (laughs) He had this wooden staff. That's all he had. It says in Genesis 32, verse 10, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness 
and all of the faithfulness which you have shown me to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed the Jordan, and I have now become two companies. Twenty years have passed. He's experienced the faithfulness of God. He's got two maids, bridesmaids, I guess, two wives. He's got 11 children and a daughter. He's got wealth, even though Laban did everything in his power to decrease Jacob's wealth. And this is a man for 20 years as a fugitive on the run that has experienced nothing but the grace of God. And he recognizes it. And Esau recognizes it. Where'd all this family, where'd all this stuff come from? And so he gives an answer. Jacob gives an answer. Is this your answer, by the way? When the Lord, people ask you about your blessings? What do you say? Well, I got a good education and I applied myself and I worked hard. Or do you give the glory to the Lord? Jacob, it's interesting, gives the glory to the Lord. So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. It's the grace of God that I have all of this. And God likes it, I believe, that when we glorify him for what he has done. Isaiah 42 and verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I remember I was riding in a a car from Little Rock, Arkansas, all the way to Viola, Arkansas. Have you ever been to Viola, Arkansas? I would be shocked if anybody even knows where it is. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And we were doing a Bible conference out in the middle of nowhere. How I got talked into that, I'll I'll never know. But I'm riding with my professor, uh, Robert Leitner. And that's when you, in these long kind of rides, you um, you get really get to know somebody. And I remember him talking about, you know, all of his children, all of his grandchildren, all of the things that they're accomplishing in their lives. And then he says, glory to God. Great, great things he has done. Never, never forget that. More than all his lectures that he gave me at Dallas Seminary. I remember that one because he was glorifying the Lord for what the Lord over the course of time had done in his life. That's what, that's what Jacob is doing. I think we should be a little bit more that way, shouldn't we? You have the introductions to the family there, verses 6 and 7, a lot of people to meet. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. Um, and afterwards, Joseph came near with uh, Rachel and they bowed down. So here come all of the mothers with their accompanying children and Jacob is, is meeting all of these people. You know, very, very different than what he had thought was going to happen where he divided his company. 400 are coming against me. 
You know, I bet I better take some precautions. And precautions are, are a good thing. But the very thing that Jacob feared the most didn't happen. I find that so instructive for us. Most of the things that we worry about never really materialize. I mean, is, is there time in a person's life to assume the worst and take precautions? Of, of course there is. But I still remember that conversation at that university across from that table. I remember my friend saying that, and it's been true in my life. This is sort of the advantage of journaling, if you keep a journal. Because if you don't keep a journal, we kind of just gravitate from one crisis to the next. But if you keep a journal, suddenly you're looking back and you're saying, you know, I was really upset about X, Y, and Z six months ago. And things worked out just fine. So I don't have to be kind of an emotional yo-yo. You know, now I'm upset about the next thing. All I got to do is say, you know, what I was so concerned about, God took care of. Seek, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. What are all these things? What are we, Matthew 6, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? What are we going to put on? Jesus says it's the it's the pagans that are all worried about this stuff. I mean, I mean they're the ones all worried about retirement and uh, finances for retirement, interest rates, price of gas. Gee, America's not energy independent anymore. You know, poor God, what's he going to do now? You know, kind of attitude. And, you know, really we just have to just put the Lord first, seek his kingdom priorities, and all these other things will be taken care of. And then I could take the energy that I've invested into all this anxiety, and I can now channel it the right the right direction. That's really the problem with anxiety, is it's a thief. It will It will suck your energy up like you wouldn't believe. And every my, uh, iota of energy that's taken from you in that endeavor is taken away because you only have so much energy from something productive. You get bitterness under control and you get anxiety under control. And you're like that eagle flying above circumstances. And the world really can't understand what you're doing up there. You say, well, I know why I'm up here. Jesus put me up here. Because I'm making a decision by way of volition to not live beneath my uh, standing that God has given me. So Esau now is going to accept these gifts. But there's kind of a hesitancy on his part remember Jacob has arranged all these gifts for for Esau to accept first he asks a question verse 8 Esau asking Jacob he says what do you mean by all this company which I have met so it's an inquiry I mean why are you giving me all this this stuff here's Jacob's answer uh, second part of verse 8, and he said to find favor 
in the sight of my Lord. I wanted to find favor with you because I knew that you had a grudge against me. Isn't it great that in our interactions with God, that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you already have favor? It's not like you have to go before God and say, Lord, okay, I'm going to offer you this, this, and this for you to accept me. Jesus says that's already accomplished 2,000 years ago. You don't have to come to me seeking my favor. You already have my favor because the very last words of Jesus on the cross were, it is finished. It's a John 19.30. Therefore, when Jesus had received his sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished, as we have said many times, is a translation from the Greek word tetelestai. It basically means to be paid in full. It's an accounting term. It's all taken care of. Well, if it's all taken care of, then why are we groveling around all of the time trying to get God's favor when we already have it? The world of religion will never tell you this, ever. The world of religion, and I've used this slide many times. This comes from Thomas Stiegel of Duluth Bible Church. The world of religion says Christ did 90%. you got to kick in 10%. By doing what? Pay, pray, and obey. How much paying and how much praying, how much obeying? Oh, we didn't tell you that. Ha, ha, ha. world of religion never tells you how much. So it just keeps you on this treadmill. That's how a lot of people are living right now. They're on this spiritual treadmill thinking, because what you have to do is never objectively defined doing all this stuff to get God to like them. God bought lunch, you better leave the tip. I mean, how how different is um, Jesus and the doctrine of grace where Jesus did 100%? I mean, to telestai means what it says and says what it means. This isn't my personal theology. This is just reading the Bible. That's what happened 2,000 years ago. It is finished. And the doctrine of grace says Jesus did 100%. Now you receive what he has done as a free gift. Well, what about pay, pray, and obey? Well, you can do that if you want, but not to gain his favor. You ought to think about things like that by way of gratitude, worshipful service, But if you think that if you don't do those three things, pay, pray, and obey, that the carpet's going to be ripped out from under you, if that's what you think, and why do I know people think this way? Because that's the way I thought for the first 16 years of my life. Because I didn't understand the doctrine of grace. If you think that you have to pay, pray, and obey to get God's favor, then you don't even understand, and I've got one finger at you and three aiming back at me. 
You don't even you don't even understand the basics of the Bible. I mean, you don't even understand the most fundamental truth of the Bible. Because the most fundamental truth of the Bible is Jesus did it all. And we receive what he has done as a gift. You want to talk about the freedom you experience as a grace-filled Christian compared to being a religious person? You know, think of the total bondage the religious person is in. Never really knowing if they've done quite enough. And Jesus comes along and he sets you free. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. He liberates you from religiosity and says it's done. Christianity is not a doing system. It's a done system. It's accomplished. It's finished. And you understand that, and boy, maybe I should treat other people with mercy too. That frees me up emotionally, as we talked about earlier. And by the way, if Jesus did all this, maybe the little things in my life that are always agitating me, maybe he'll take care of those too. It's just an argument from the greater to the lesser. I mean, if he did, if he did the big thing, maybe he'll take care of the little things. It's like buying um, some tickets for people, you know, to go on a, their their lifetime goal of going on a cruise. Hey, I've got two tickets for you and your significant other to go on a cruise. Now, I'm just saying hypothetically, I don't have that, but let's pretend I have that. And then you then you say to me, "Oh, that's so wonderful." Um, but you know, I'm a little short on cash. You know, um, I'm having some trouble paying for the money to get to where the cruise leaves from, and so I need uh, some transportation. And I say, "Eh, you're on your own for that one. No transportation for you." Even though the transportation fee is insignificant and negligible in comparison to the cruise. I mean, if I bought you the cruise, wouldn't I take care of some gas money for you? Or an Uber or however it is you're going to get there? That's sort of what we're like with God. Yeah, Lord, you did all this stuff for me. We just took communion at Sugarland Bible Church to celebrate it, but you know, I've got this little issue in my life. I don't think I don't think you can help me. I think God sort of laughs at stuff like that. That's what is what does Jesus say, Matthew six, as he's talking about things like this? Oh ye of little faith. Why why can't you trust me with the little thing? when I've already taken care of the big thing. You'll notice again, I think Jacob has a lower view of himself than he has. Do you realize that the Bible is your best psychology? Do you realize that people will go to a trained psychiatrist or psychologist or something and submit themselves um, to hours and hours and hours of instruction trying to get emotional health when the Bible already gives it to you. You know, I'm not against counseling and things like that, but I'm thinking we are looking for solutions in Dr. Phil and people like that 
when the Bible is the most emotionally liberating book you could ever give yourself to. It helps you with self-image. It helps you with bitterness. It helps you with worry. You get control of those three things, you're living way above your circumstances. And you're flying like that that eagle. But I think Jacob here doesn't really have a very high view of himself because he says uh, in verse 8, second part of the verse, and he said to find favor in the sight of my Lord. If you go down to verse 14, he says, my Lord. If you look at verse 15, end of the verse, he says, my Lord. In other words, he has gotten his eye off something. And that something is the promise of God. Genesis twenty-five, twenty-three: the older shall serve the younger. Genesis 27, 29, be master over your brothers. And may your mother's sons come bow down to you. Well, why are you calling Esau Lord then? Genesis 27, 37. But Isaac replied to Esau, behold, I have made him your master and all his relatives I have given to him as Servants, God said the opposite of Jacob. And yet Jacob was viewing Esau through a wrong lens. It's identical to what happened to the spies who came out of Canaan. They went to pass through the Red Sea, the book of Exodus, went to Sinai, received the law of God, And all they have to do is trust God for 11 days. You'll find 11 days. I think it's in Deuteronomy 1. I think it's around verse 2. 11 days and you're in. But 11 days became 40 years. Because they got to a place called Kadesh Barnea, southern end of Canaan. They looked into the land and they saw what? Giants in the land... I mean, shouldn't they have said, in hindsight's 2020, right? Shouldn't they have said, well, what's a few giants? I mean, God just parted the Red Sea. But they didn't do that. We became like Numbers 13:33. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight. There's the problem. Our own sight. You're analyzing life through your own prism. And not looking at it through the lens of God. You see Esau refusing the gift initially, verse 9. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother, and what you have be your own. Did you know that as Jacob became wealthy, so did Esau? First time I read that, it kind of surprised me, but... Actually, it's not surprising when you look at Genesis 12:2, where God said to Abram and his descendants, Esau being one of the descendants, although Esau is not Israel, he's still a descendant of Abraham, I will bless you. So the fact that Esau became prosperous like Jacob shouldn't be that much of a surprise. Jacob 
or gives a couple of reasons here why Esau should accept these gifts. The first reason is in verse 10. Jacob said, No, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Jacob insists, take these gifts. It's kind of a wordplay on penile. Or Jacob in the prior chapter saw the face of God. He's saying to Esau, you were glad to see me. I mean, look at those action verbs, how you fell on my neck and you kissed me and you wept. So go ahead and take the gifts. And his second reason for taking the gifts is in verse 11. See, we're at verse 11 now. You guys shouldn't have laughed at me. See, I'm holding a grudge against you guys. I need to apply my own teaching. Please take my gift which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. While Esau had more than enough, Jacob had everything. Is probably a better translation of that. I don't need these gifts. I have everything. Did you know that as a Christian you have everything? Did you know that as a Christian, as God looks at your account, there's nothing missing? Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's nothing lacking. That's why Jesus to the struggling church at Smyrna could say, I know your poverty, but you're rich. Isn't it interesting that when you understand you have everything, our hands get looser on the things that we do have, and we have a tendency to be a little more generous with people. I mean, if we're lacking in anything, I could see tight-fistedness in us, but but not to people that have everything from a spiritual perspective. And then this ends with um, Esau just accepting the gifts. Uh, Second part of verse 11, Thus he urged him, and he took it. Esau took the gifts. Then Esau offers an escort, which is not something Jacob even asked for. So we'll read about that next time. And then we'll be getting into the movement to Shechem, and which is in the Promised Land, verses 18 through 20. And then something so unreal happens in Shechem, to be completely honest with you, If I didn't have this in my Bible, I wouldn't think that this kind of thing, as horrifying as it is, could transpire. So that's what's coming in chapter 34. But it concludes with Esau receiving the gifts. My basic question for you is, have you received your gift? God is not going to force his gift on you. A gift by nature requires volition of the receiver. A lot of systems of theology will say God has ordained some to be saved and he forces them against their will. We don't teach that here. We teach that salvation is free. It's available to everyone. And 
you can only receive it when you activate your own free will or your own volition and receive what God has done. It's always frustrating to give someone something and they don't even know they have it. My mom, hey, did you get that Christmas present we sent you? Oh, gosh, where is it? I, There it is, still stuck under the tree. Forgot it was there. My mom gets a little insulted when that happens. How does God feel? He gives you a gift, and we just don't receive it. There's a pardon with your name, and we never receive it. There's only one way to receive a gift from God, and that's by faith alone. Romans 4, 4 and 5 says that as clearly as it can be said. Our exhortation to anyone within the sound of my voice as the Spirit places them under conviction is to, by way of faith, which means trust, receive what Jesus did for you. Put your faith for your future, your eternity, and the forgiveness of your sins exclusively into the person of Jesus Christ, who said it is finished. Stop trusting in your own good works to get favor from God and trust in the good work that God has done for us 2,000 years ago, which gives us automatic favor with Him. I hope many, many people as they're watching, listening, are now placing their faith in the person of Jesus Christ for salvation. If it's something that you need more information on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for not taking us too seriously. We have so much growth to do, and we do so many goofy things. Um, Thank you for your love. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your gift towards us. I just pray that we would grow in a knowledge of what you've done for us. And that would affect our emotions. That would affect our decisions. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.